Hey there, welcome to We've Been Had, which I guess is in a new season now. Um, I'll be explaining that in a minute. I'm Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. And uh, yeah, I don't know, Chad, anything happened to you since the last episode? Anything no, going no, on I'm in your life? Pre- pretty standard, really. It's, uh, it's been been no. a nice, normal five months. I haven't, I haven't left the house in like three months, but you know, other than that, <laughs> things are perfectly normal. Like, I just, I love, I remember when we taped the last one. I, you know, I remember saying to you, I think I said on the air, I, you know, I know I went around telling people like, no more of these long delays. Like, we're going to be <laughs> just like on, you know, we're going to be on a schedule now. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Pandemic, man. It's a, it's a killer. Yeah. Uh, it is a killer. Literally. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I, I, I accidentally was kind of callous there. Um, yeah, pretty flippant with people's lives. That's that's me, Johnny Flip. <laughs> um, but yeah, so with the show, we you know we were still working through the St. Vincent catalog, song by song, and then um, the world blew up. Um, and in the meantime, we kind of, at least I started thinking like you know we weren't bringing the exact right fire that we wanted to bring like St. St. Vincent is great, but I think you pointed out like we didn't have the years and years of thought and analysis that we did with the uncle Tupelo season. And uh, you know, when you're going song by song, like I was kind of realizing that was what carried us that like even the worst on, even the, the uncle Tupelo songs we had the least to say about, like we'd still have stories about piranhas and fountains to, to fall well, back. And you've been, you know, like since we, we grew up listening to music pre, you know, I mean, I guess your CD, you could technically skip ahead, but yeah. You know, you, so St. Vincent for me was more of a, a Spotify uh, era yeah. thing that I found. And so yeah. I don't, I just, just didn't have the, like, I think her great songs are amazing. I just didn't have the connection with some of the deeper cuts that, yeah. uh, that weirdly I do with, still feel gone which i feel like i haven't listened to in 15 years but well, yeah you know, I, yeah those are embedded memories i guess yeah like even the even the ones that you didn't connect with you remembered being stuck in a car hearing and had had a story to tell um or something uh but yeah so um you know as we were talking about this offline chad had the idea of switching to a deep look at a different album each episode with us switching off picking the albums and uh i guess that's going to be you know i i i'm i'm branding that as season three uh, it's it, it's just us doing the same thing but different um until keith lets me do our uh, episode by episode walk through doctor who Jesus. you know i doctor i won't derail us before we start now <laughs> I'm gonna say I I I gave Doctor Who a good faith effort. I tried. But. Yeah, I mean original BBC Doctor Who starting point. <sighs> Got a rad go theme on. song. Either that or I mean you could start with the most. It's a show about a time lord. You could start about with the most recent one and go backwards. I think that's that, it. That is that's legit. I tried. I don't know. It, yeah. it just. I, the, the I had the same issue. Good. I had the same issue with Firefly. Everybody told me it was great. I just wanted to punch Nathan Fillion in the face. I did Firefly. I, I love that we're like we're derailed before we're even starting, <laughs> but 
Firefly to me was like this weird mix of like Han Solo fan fiction and with like Confederate apologia attached to it. And like, I, I mean, like, I know there, there's probably a good show there and I'm probably not being fair, but that was, that was my reaction. Yeah. I just could not get into it. And, you know, just a, just a little hot tip for people. The uh, Firefly fan community is pretty, uh, is pretty strident. So they, yeah. they, don't to- they don't tolerate a lot of <laughs> constructive criticism. Yeah. I mean, we might be starting off the new direction here. Uh, you know, just by getting getting the Firefly army pissed at us, which is fine, um, because it turns out there are millions in the Firefly army, and it takes a fandom of millions to hold yeah. us back. Holy it's shit! Hell of a segue. Great segue. <laughs> so yeah, the uh, the first album we'll be talking about, Public Enemies, takes a nation of millions to hold us back. <laughs> So, I mean, this is kind of a, this is not a, a particularly important question, but as I was doing some research, I found out that originally the working title was Countdown to Armageddon. Pretty great. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of neat that, that, like, they were, they were at least debating between two awesome, two awesome titles. I think it's pretty clear that if you were dealing with Chuck D, you know, really at any time, but especially, like, in that phase, like, you're just you're talking to a guy who just has a head full of great words you know it's just like i um yeah so i i guess to like to start us off you know i'll i i wrote down like the the tombstone information for the album so takes a nation of millions to hold us back released april 1988 on def jam it's officially produced by chuck d and hank shockley with Rick Rubin getting an, ex- an executive producer credit, but I don't think Rubin, I think like it was just if you were on Def Jam, you know. <laughs> like the gentleman C. I think that's exactly <laughs> it. Um, and from what I've read, the actual rest of the production team was Hank Shockley's brother, Keith. Um, and then this dude who just has the greatest fucking name, Eric Vietnam Sadler. Like, yeah. I mean, that's a hard handle to try to go with, um, you know, especially in 88. Like, the yeah. wounds are still pretty raw. Yeah. I would love to know, like, like A, how did he get the nickname? And B, like, was it was it widely used? You know, was it just, like, people like, hey, Vietnam, what's up? Yeah. I, it just it seems like a lot of syllables for a nickname, too. I don't know <laughs> yeah. if that, like, you know, it doesn't exactly, like, because his first name is Eric, right? Yeah. Yeah, you so, don't get a lot. You don't usually you don't usually lengthen it with the yeah maybe maybe like casually they'd shorten it to Nam yeah you know yeah. I, I don't know but I mean like like so you know whatever jokes about the name like I I, I this entire fucking album is just perfect I think it, I, I guess not perfect but it's awfully close it fucking rules. And the production is a big part of it, you know. Like, like, I, I don't know that I, I don't know that there are any rap albums that are produced better than this for my taste. Like, especially just, in 1988. Yeah, I mean, that, that was sort of the uh, sort of the the golden era for 
for a crappy rap production. It's kind of like it's kind of like any punk music that was recorded in the seventies. It was like yeah. a badge of honor to have it sound shitty for some reason. Into the eighties too. I mean, like I think you know part of loving Husker Du is like loving a band who's who's best recorded records still sound terrible <laughs> but you know well with this one one thing that i think is interesting like so rick rubin you know gets the executive producer credit and nobody nobody actually i've never heard anyone say that he had anything to do with the sound of this but like so much other early rap on def jam is all about like rick rubin's you know, like his taste is just like defining everything. And like, and, and like, I love a lot of that music, but like it's, you know, it, it just, it sounds like nowhere near as ornate as this. And like, it's wild to me that, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that like just this multi-layered, just amazing sound machine that they put together here is like in reaction to what the house producer on their label does for everyone else, you know, like, like everything else is just like a sampled drum beat and like some kind of rat ass guitar playing over it. And I don't know. It's really, it's really impressive. I don't know if you uh, went down this rabbit hole that I did of uh, going to the website who sampled who, <laughs> um, and just looking at all the, looking at all the samples that they used. And then also like what other artists have sampled that. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's kind of a cool it's a cool website I like it it's, uh, but I I was impressed with like the number of times they sampled the same James Brown song that funky drummer uh, funky drummer and also the grunt which I guess is technically a a JB's song which I think is his backing band but um, yeah. shout out to Bootsy Collins <laughs> Bootsy Maceo Parker too I guess yeah. damn yeah. I yeah and, I mean, and like seventy other people that I don't that I can't name. <laughs> yeah, the uh, I, no like the track tracking down samples like I have I have weirdly mixed feelings for that where like it's it's always really interesting but it also like it can change the way I hear a song kind of yeah. you know like like I stop hearing the Public Enemy song and start like oh yeah oh they're doing Funky Drummer again. Um, yeah, and I, I guess that's not a bad thing. Like it's not like it like takes it away, but. You know, I think uh, you, I think you maybe just have a more attuned ear for that type of stuff because I like I really have to listen for it to to find it, and then it's like I instantly forget it. <laughs> yeah. Well, how about I mean, like like slightly different but kind of closely related. How about like um, Eggman on uh, on Paul's boutique? You know, like it starts out and it sounds like it's going to be Pusher Man, and like. To me, like, like that's still like, like it's weird to me hearing, you know. Sometimes you hear that that opening on the radio, and you have to like think about, okay, which station am I listening to to know what you're about to hear? Beastie Boys are just really good at that. Like that, uh, like I can't remember if it's on Check Your Head, but they have a song that samples that Cheap Trick live at uh, Budokan. Yeah. Where it's yeah. like this is the first song on our new album, and I yeah. I never I never know if it's the like if I'm listening to classic rock, like it's likely the uh, it's likely the Cheap Trick song, but any other radio station is probably the Beastie Boys. So. Yeah, and I actually so like I, the B, I, 
bleh, the interrelation between the Beastie Boys and Public Enemy is really interesting to me because, like, they, you know, they, they knew each other, they respected each other. Um, you know, the last song on this album is either a shot back or a salute to Fight Fear Right to Party. Um, and on the production side, I think it's really interesting that, like, the Beastie Boys' first album is just, like, archetypal for that Rick Rubin, you know, like, I'm going to sample the drums for when the levee breaks and then put a guitar over it. And then they're going to rap over it. Um, you know, and PE makes this record that is just, you know, like these giant sample collages with drum machines mixed in. And I don't think it's an accident then that Paul's boutique is what it is. I, I think it was a direct, like, I think that was them saying like, Oh fuck, we need to, you know, up our game. Yeah. Like, I mean, the impressive, the impressive thing to me is that is the the Public Enemy al- album is all of that with really deep, you know, kind of cutting societal messages. Yeah, uh, which is like, I mean, candidly, it's it's pretty easy to sound like Billy Bragg, where you're just like <laughs> you're just whining for an hour, you know, about inequality uh, from a British white British communist, which is, is kind of annoying. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I think the, I mean, the thing that has always impressed me about this album is just the way they the way they layer in these complex thoughts in a in a manner that's is pleasant to listen to. So it's like yeah. it's thought-provoking and entertaining. Yeah, well, that's, Rebecca and I were talking about this the other day, that like a big part of why this album, and you know, why PE in general works so well is that like they're hilarious, you know, like, like they're angry, but they're also it's fucking really funny. You know, like nobody, I, I don't know of any line in music that that's funnier than the, uh, I got a letter from the government. I opened it. I read it. It said they were suckers. <laughs> like that's especially like with his delivery. That's just, and, you know, and like, I mean, I've, you know, with the mystery of Flavor Flav, like there really isn't that much mystery. Like he, the music needs him to be there to lighten things up. And, you know, know, like like he, he makes it tolerable to handle like all this heavy shit that there. Did you ever hear in the nineties, did you ever hear that group, uh, the disposable heroes of hypocrisy? I don't think so. No. They, like, I only, I, I remember MTV tried to push them a little bit, and then there was, like, when U2 did their big Zuropa tour, um, their alternating headliners were Public Enemy and the Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. And at the show in Ames, uh, we, we got, you know, we lost the coin toss and got the Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. And they, they just, like, they're great because they, they, show why PE works because they're like it's the same thing where it's politically conscious rap the guy rapping really you know he's obviously trying to sound like Chuck D um, but there's no humor it's just it's all it's like it, it's the Billy Bragg mode um, you know there's no humor there's no flave and it's just such a fucking drag it, you know it's just this guy like it, it it's like uh, it's someone doing a Chuck D imitation, just hectoring you about how bad television is. 
I think the challenge too is that like Chuck D's voice, his writing, his delivery, like all of those things come together to form this thing, right? That you yeah. can't really wrap your brain around. And yeah. I mean the guy the, the guy's like in his sixties and he's still like first of all he looks like he's forty, which is annoying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he's I mean, it's just, I, yeah, I just, uh, you come away, you come away from public enemy really liking Chuck D at least for me. Yeah. He's, you know, I, I said, said on Twitter the other night, like I, I wouldn't quite say that I'd follow Chuck D to the gates of hell, but I'd at least like hear him out on what his plan was when he went in and what he was hoping to accomplish. And I'd give it a good think. I, uh, we, this past weekend, we were trying to watch the Lollapalooza live stream stuff. And um, part of that was they had a conversation between Chuck D and Perry Farrell. And like, mm. it was, it was like watching like office hours when the biggest idiot on campus wandered into you know, the African studies professor's office. Like, like I'm sure Perry Farrell's a nice guy, but just he, could not hold up a conversation with, with like, just, the gap the, like, like the gap in like mental acuity between the two was you know chuck just like starts going into this like history of how hip-hop grew up as this you know kind of folk tradition in the streets with people with like pirate sound systems you know and it grew out of jamaican toasts and you know he's like going into this like pretty detailed pocket history and Farrell's just like, yeah, man, I used to like to take the subway. I'd see people there. Yeah, I don't know if it's a I don't know if it's a combination of drugs with Perry Farrell or just his personality, but like he's just a really hard person to take seriously. Like yes. he, I think that's the key to him is to like deal with him in places where you don't have to take him seriously. Where you're gonna just be like, haha, he's the guy wearing a lot of leather. But he, he started Lollapalooza, right? He did. I mean, in addition to being in Jane's Addiction and Porno for Pyros. Uh, I don't know. I so, guess I mean, that, there must be more there than, than I than maybe he just comes across as aloof. Maybe. Maybe it's all like this elaborate con so that people will underestimate him and then he can like It's like a like a super villain. Yeah. He's running the mm -hmm. long con on all of us. Um, did so, you uh, did you get did you get a chance to listen to the uh, the Talib Kweli interview with Chuck D? The I podcast? didn't. No. So he uh, he told a told a kind of a, Chuck D told kind of an interesting anecdote uh, about this about this guy from New York uh, who's who's older and his nickname has always been Dr. Dre. He was on that show UMTV Raps, yeah. Ed Lover. Yeah. And uh, he said that that, that Dr. Dre and uh, Chuck D were talking about, you know, talk, we're talking, and uh, it's like, well, I don't know, there's this guy in Los Angeles who also goes by Dr. Dre. And they both decided that uh, that he should just keep the name because that guy likely is going to flame out. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I want, uh, yeah, I mean, that's awesome. Does it, so does it, 
Can you claim like old school rap cred if you were once confused by the matter of the two doctors, Dre? You know, like I feel like that. Yeah, so that that happened to me. Yeah, like, same. Because you know, like suburban kid from Minnesota wa watching Yo MTV raps, I'm like, God, that's what Doctor Dre looks like from from NWA. <laughs> like that. That's not what he looks like. That's not him. That's why he doesn't. <laughs> His whole demeanor is so different here. I don't get it. Well, he's a totally different guy. So that actually that leads into a thing that I wanted to just ask you about. Like, so what what is your history with Public Enemy and with this, you know, this album in particular, but band in general? What's what was your way in? Yeah, so I mean I think this this album and the band are similar time frames. I think uh one of the people that on my dorm floor had fear of a black planet um, and we liked that so uh somebody bought this album probably from bmg or columbia house or yeah. pre-spotify like physical spotify services uh, <laughs> and uh and yeah so probably i don't know when i was in college i probably started listening to it but i don't think it really clicked for me until after college yeah um, you know, because it it took me. You know, I grew up in Minnesota and went to college in Iowa, which are not, you know, just aren't really on the until recently on the front lines of the uh, of kind of the you know, civil rights movement. Yeah. So I don't know. What about you? Well, it's this weird thing where, like, I you know, rural Nebraska. I remember hearing. I think Fight the Power was the first PE song I, you know, I saw on MTV. And, like, there was this weird thing where I liked it, but, like, not enough to, you know, not enough to buy an album. Um, I remember a couple of years later, Shut em Down came out. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really good. I really like this. But there was this thing that, like, I guess I have to... I guess it was a form of internalized racism, I guess, where like, I just, I had this feeling like I cannot like rap music. Like, you know, like I just, it felt like it was not for me and there would be something wrong with me liking it, which is like a totally fucking weird thing. But that was, you know, those were real thoughts that were in my head. Um, you know, and, and like that sense, it was weird. That sense was so strong that even like, you know, I remember, I remember like when um, Check Your Head came out and I bought it. Like I, I, I remember feeling like I was doing something wrong, just buying a rap album. And like that, that just, that, I don't know, that is so weird, especially it's the fucking Beastie Boys. Like what's wrong with that? Um, but you know, then like after, at, sometime after undergrad, I was like, I need to, like I'm being an idiot. I need to like, investigate rap and got this uh you know and, and that, that's such a like white academic thing like i'm going to investigate this rap thing i just remember getting this like you know hip-hop sampler album that had don't believe the hype on it and i'm just like what the fuck you know how how have i been how have i been denying this this long um and yeah then after that i got it takes a nation of millions and like you know just immediately loved it and you know, would sit in my cube listening to it. Um, yeah. 
I mean, I do think though that I think that like exploration of different types of music is, I mean, I, I think that's great. Like I've, I've, I feel like that's a, that's a hallmark of just, just getting older and learning that you can appreciate different types of things. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, like if I think about like my, I don't, you know, like I just, small town Nebraska, especially in the eighties and nineties, like rap was this, like the entire culture there would treat rap as like this scary thing that was coming from somewhere else. And like, you know, the, uh, the more like crap music jokes, you know, they were just, they were everywhere. Um, and this is weird thing where I remember seeing like Paul McCartney on MTV talking about how he didn't, you know, I remember him saying that like, well, you know, rap is dumb because they're all just bragging about themselves. And you don't, you don't see me saying, well, my name is Paul and I'm better than y'all. And, uh, you know, I remember thinking like, oh, well, if McCartney says it's, uh, if Paul McCartney says I don't need to care, I don't need to care. Noted person with a small ego, Paul McCartney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one thing that I think is funny thinking back to Blair is like the, there were kids who liked rap in my high school. But a lot of times it was like, it was the metal kids. It would be like, yeah, I like Pantera and I like Sir Mix a lot. Like, you know, good for those kids. Like, yeah. I mean, respect I to them. I mean, I think that's, I mean, like, I, I don't think that's, Chuck D and Public Enemy are pretty open about their love for Anthrax. Yeah. They slant, they sample a Slayer song and uh, she watched Channel Zero. Isn't that, I thought that was Anthrax, like, I thought Anthrax was backing them on that. I think they are, but there is also a Slayer song okay. that's, uh, that's sampled in that song. I do. I didn't. I guess I didn't look that up, but I do think that is Anthrax playing. And I mean, Ice Ice T was in a was in a metal band, right? So I mean, there's there's. I mean, that's one of the. I think one of the criticisms that I that I read about the album when it came out was that people thought it was closer to punk rock than rap. And so there was some, which is asinine, but yeah. I mean, it, there is, uh, there is, a, you know, it's got the same kind of fire, I guess. Yeah, definitely. They're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we've talked offline about um, that podcast series Spotify has of Chuck telling the story of the clash. And like, that's, that's such a, you know, such a natural combination, um, you know, because they're, they're doing, I think they're basically doing the same thing just with different, you know, diff, different musical arrangements, but you know, yeah, like, and, and I mean, the clock, the clash are a good example too. Like they, they brought in a lot of reggae elements to, to their sound. And, you know, I think it, I, I think good, I guess you don't need to do this to be a good artist, but a lot of good artists are able to blend elements from other other styles of music. To... Yeah, I think if you don't do that, well, I mean, like, this is totally out of left field, but, like, I'm always trying to figure out why I'm so bored with the Jayhawks now. Um, when, like, I used to just love them, and they haven't really stopped, you know, they still do the things that I love, loved, but, like, I guess it's just they've stopped incorporating, you know, they're not bringing anything new in. They're just, like, doing the same thing. Like, oh, yep, 
we're kind of country and we're singing about small towns. And, Sounds like you want a you want a Jayhawks thrash metal set. I would love a Jayhawks thrash metal set. Like, I mean, imagine Gary Loris like letting himself off the leash. I think that would be cathartic. That would be fantastic. So, just just out of curiosity, would and I know there are a lot of great songs on this album, so I don't want to pigeonhole you, but. Yeah. Just your first thought, what's your favorite song on the album? Uh, Toss-up, I know it's a, this is a chicken shit answer. Toss-up between Party for Your Right to Fight and Don't Believe the Hype. I mean, it's probably Don't Believe the Hype, but that's also such the like go-to that I feel like I have to have the second. Uh, but I mean, oh, they're both so fucking good. How about you? Probably don't believe the hype, uh, just because, it, it, you know, I just, I, there's so many things that I like about it that, that it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to pick anything except for that. Although yeah. I do, I do think uh, the Terminator X song where they, where they uh, mix in Queen's Flash Gordon theme is one of my favorite. Like, God, that rules. That, that, yeah, like. The use of Queen is great. Um, my wife has this great story too that she was uh, so she was in on the ground floor and had this album in high school, um, and she talks about how she had that song on, and you know how it goes from the Queen stuff to then like um, that weird descending like yeah. looped, and uh, her mom like bursts into her room and is like, "What are you listening to? It sounds like someone's killing a dolphin." Like, that's what I always that's a really specific thing. Yeah, like how do you know what that sounds like, Jan? Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, oh man, yeah, so much good stuff. I um, so the Terminator. Okay, two things that reminds me of that I wanted to bring up. One is like this is one of those records that I've had for so long and loved for so long, and like had in the CD era. So it would just be like in the trunk of my car in my swank 12 disc player. Um, it was pretty swank. Oh fuck. That thing was the bomb. Is that the Saturn? That was. Nice. Yeah. Um, that was a great car. But, uh, this is an album where like, I love the album. There are a lot of songs where I'm not a hundred percent sure of the, of the song names because I just know like, Oh, okay. Oh, it's that one. Oh, it's that one. Um, it was the, Oh, another thing I was gonna point out is like, it's interesting to me that they start the album with a clip from them playing live. You know, it starts out with like the intro to a show at the Hammersmith Odeon. And then they like, they cut back into that live show in a bunch of spots on the album, including at the start of the, of Terminator X to the edge of panic, I think it's called. Um, and I just think that's a really interesting choice. Cause that like, that lets them make the band sound like a bigger deal than they were at the time. You know, like I think they rapidly got big, but when this came out, they were just kind of, you know, another one of the Def Jam acts that, you know, wasn't setting the world on fire, but they can make it sound like, Oh no, we've got, listen to this roaring crowd. You're hearing this crowd like go nuts for us as you listen to the record. And like, it just gives it this sense of bigness that I think is really clever. Yeah, it's uh, it, 
the other thing that's weird for me at least is i'm so used to listening to it in order yeah that, that when i hear songs on their own it's it's kind of confusing to me so they're like yeah they're like sequenced in my brain in the album order so yeah. it's uh which is a weird thing to say in 2020. yeah it's that's kind of a, a, a weaning thing well and with that sequencing i think part of why i like party for your right to fight is like this other interesting production choice i, I mean like it's great on its own but it's also like most of the album you know, is either Chuck or Flav rapping, you know, and the other one will come in. And then, like, Party for Your Right to Fight, they're both rapping. Like, like it's not in harmony. They're just, like, you know, they're just both rapping together and, like, saying the same thing. And, like, if you're listening in headphones, it's mixed so that Chuck's in one ear and Flav's in the other ear. And, like, I, I just, I love the way, like, the album builds you up to expect what it's going to sound like. And then the last song, like, oh, fuck, you know, I just... They made a way to sound, to make it sound bigger, and like that's just I love that. That the first time I heard that, I was just like a kick in the ass. It's like stop making sense or something like that. Or yeah, it just keeps like assembling. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I love that. I, I guess you know we were talking about the different name options, and like I love that they say the name of the album like the name of that album is the climax of that song then and like that it just gives you this feeling like you've been building you know this whole thing has been an argument and we've built to it takes a nation of millions to hold us back which is a great fucking title like we didn't even i guess we kind of bounced off that but like if you stop yeah. and think about that and like in the position of what they're saying and what their whole deal is like it's fucking brilliant yeah it's it's great. It's uh, I mean, it, it, back to the kind of punk rock parallels. Like, what what could be a possibly more punk rock ethos than it takes a nation of millions to hold us back? Right. That, I don't know. It's it's just it's impressive as hell. One of the things that, that was interesting to me is uh, is I read that uh, Chuck D designed the Public Enemy logo. Really. In uh, not he designed it before Public Enemy was a band, just as a like marketing vehicle for like underground shows. Okay. That, like he and then when Public Enemy formed, they used that as their as their logo. That's fantastic. Like, it's like what else can the man do? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, that in that um, in that Lollapalooza thing where he was talking to Perry Farrell. It was actually like the camera, you know, he was he was on Zoom, so it was kind of, you know, same thing, same view we have now of just his face as he's like talking to Farrell, but he's also like looking down and you can tell he's working on something. And at the end of the conversation, he just holds up this like fucking insane, great like ink and watercolor thing that he's been working on the whole time. And like it is, it's just nuts that like, okay, you're actually a, pretty good visual artist too like in addition to you know being like one of the the great mcs i don't know it, uh, yeah it just uh it, it blows uh, blows my mind it's crazy but i i feel like the one of the things that i that i really appreciate about this album is just that you know your first the 
it, it seems like you pick something else up new each time you listen to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's like, I don't know. I, I was just listening to it, uh, listening to it uh, this morning just to kind of prep for this. And I, I had never realized that there are two LL Cool J <laughs> callbacks. So, the- uh, you know, the one with the one, the anthrax, it, they could rock the bells. Yeah. So, and the other one is just name checking. It's LL Cool J. But I, I had never picked that up before. And I mean, I've been listening to the album for 20 years and I've been mishearing that <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's, I, it's so it, it's this weird thing where like it's it's the words are accessible in a way that I think a lot of modern rap isn't like it's mixed so that you can hear everything that Chuck and Flav say but at the same time they're saying so much and it's so dense that like yeah after 20 years you can still be like oh oh and I, that's just that's you know that's a sign of greatness I, I think and I've been trying to I've been trying to get people to call me this for years, but the incredible rhyme animal is a really, <laughs> is a really like apt description of them. You've you've got a low enough voice that I think you should start any conversation just with bass. How low can you go? I could try that. I mean there's you can't hurt, right? Yeah. So I I mean I was thinking like um actually I have an observation about about voices, but uh, it it would it it could lead some places. Um, and I'm out of beer and need to go to the bathroom, uh, <laughs> so want to take a quick break and yeah. come back and. Uh, okay, well, we are back. Um, yeah, so I was going to talk about, so like, I got this tangle of thoughts about their voices um, that, that I promise this is going somewhere. Good, um, I thought you were going to recommend that I start talking with a Cockney accent. Well, yes, you should. I, I think we both should. I think like, you know, let's see how influential we are. Who blinks first? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We we set up a tontine. Whoever quit doing it first has to like sign over their possessions. Like it. I think we're onto something here. Um, no, but so okay. So listening to this record with an ear for production this time, I, we actually like we kind of talked about this a little bit in one of the Uncle Tupelo episodes somehow, and I, I don't know how we got onto it, but like I think part of what makes Chuck and Flav work so well is this interplay between like Chuck's, you know, just fucking cash level low voice and Flav's pretty high voice, you know, that he like uses like a siren sometimes, you know, and just like from a production standpoint, it works really well to have high and low mixed. Like that's, you know, that's, that's kind of intro music production. Um, And I, I think that's a key part of why, their sound is so distinctive and so great. Um, I also think that is why at the party where I got moderately loaded and made you do karaoke of don't believe the hype. I think that was our, you know, that's what killed us is we both have fairly low voices 
Um, you know, nobody was there in the Flav range. And I was taking Chuck's part. I probably should have taken Flav's part because I think your voice is lower than mine. Just bad, bad consideration. Yeah, and still markedly better than our attempt to do the immigrant song, <laughs> which was a full-on disaster. That one was not our fault. That was a that was, whatever hack studio musicians recorded the background <laughs> for that. That one's on them. It was it was an ambitious try. You know, like went down swinging. I don't know. You you think you would just think we would be better at don't believe the hype. You know, having listened to it and like you know like i i always sing along to that song in the car but yeah. i i don't know i i feel like so i like like i didn't meet the moment right like, <laughs> yeah you know it's tough like it's an interesting thing like it's tough to um there are a there are a handful of really good singers uh or you know or artists and i think chalk d is one of them where like their words are coming from such this, not even just a specific frame point of that, not just a specific point of view, but like this specific frame of mind in that point of view that, you know, to really like, to really do Chuck D's lines right, you need to be like justifiably angry the way he is. You know, you need to be feeling it in a way that like I'm just never going to be able to feel like no matter, you know, I, I am too much a white middle-class man to ever like have it go as deep in my bones. And so like, there's always going to be this level of artifice that just, you know, like, like, I don't know, maybe it wasn't, Maybe it was a desecration to even try it at karaoke. I don't know. But at the same yeah. time, it's... I mean, you know, it, it probably wasn't the worst thing that got that got attempted, but it was uh yeah. it wasn't uh wasn't great. It, I don't know, I feel like I feel like karaoke brings out like the worst in me. Like <laughs> you know, like I have I have this tendency to, you know, do in a VFW and decide I want to sing Oki from Muskogee or you know I keep I keep threatening to sing that Loretta Lynn song The Pill which I think would be be a disaster I would love to hear that I don't think you would I don't think it would be good it, you know <laughs> some, some point someone's going to call my bluff <laughs> next time next time we're near a karaoke machine I will be calling that bluff you're going to be I don't know. I just don't know what it is. I, I kind of want to do uh, Cherry Bomb, too. I think that'd wow, be fun. That would be awesome. That would be fantastic. I'd love to hear that. Someday the world will start up again, and bars and karaoke will be a thing, and, and we'll make good on all this. Um, so I'm just I'm looking at my notes here to see what else – I wanted to bring up. Oh, well, so one thing I wanted to talk about, uh, I do have some negatives on this album. Like, I love it. It's one of my favorites, but I do have some beefs. Or I, I, one specific beef, I guess. Is one of them Cold Lampin'? No, I love Cold Lampin'. I was just, just trying to figure out where you stood on it. Just a pure Flavor Flav, like. Flavor Flav on the high tip. 
So I, I, again, I, like, I like like I like like sixty forty Chuck Flav. Yeah. Like Cold Lamb is like eighty Flav, twenty Chuck, which well, is. Well, just... I I think it's like you know how the Stones always have one song per album that Keith Richards sings. Yeah. I, you know I look at. Cold Lamp and a Flavor as the Keith Richards song for It Takes a Nation of Millions. It, it goes on a little long, but it's, I don't know, it's pretty, like, I, so that's one, you know, talking about getting new stuff out of it, I was giving that a closer listen, and uh, there's some weird shit in that song. <laughs> like, he's, like, going into necrophilia at one point? Yeah, I, I, I feel like it's, like, uh, it's like watching a Jodorowsky movie. Like you just, <laughs> like you're never going to get on his wavelength. Like yeah. it, it's a fool's errand. Yeah. So one thing I love about that song, I didn't know until pretty recently, you know how that starts with a loop of someone saying like, no more music from them suckers. No more music yeah. from them suckers. So that is actually a clip of a DJ in New York shitting on their first album. Really? Yeah, he played like something from Yo Bum Rush the Show on it, and was just like, "Yeah, this sucks." There'll be no more music from them suckers, and uh, you know, so now he's just been posterized on this like classic album. Yeah, but, that's, I feel like that's going to be like the Geraldo Rivera Al Capone's fault. Like, <laughs> it's just going to keep, just going to keep coming up to bite him in the ass. Yeah. At uh, uh oh, but okay, so back to negatives. The, the one beef I've got, like, I think the world of Chuck D. Um, you know, I just, I think he is an impressive human being. But this album, he will occasionally lapse into some shit that I am not comfortable with. Um, there's some borderline homophobia, um, you know, like occasionally something like pansy is an epithet on this album. Um, not great. But then I think, like, She Watched Channel Zero is, you know, just a fucking banging song. And, like, I love hearing Flav just, like, repeatedly yelling, like, TV is garbage, it's garbage. But at the same time, that song is pretty sexist. And, like, you know, like, the, the bit where Chuck's like, there's a five-letter word that describes her character. Like, Chuck, come on. Like. Quit slut shaming this woman for wanting to watch TV. And like, like the, the whole conceit of the song is like, you shouldn't be watching garbage TV. We want to watch Mike Tyson and then the Super Bowl. Like, right. uh, like I just, I'm not, I, I don't love that. Um, I don't love the, the sexism and the unexamined, like, you know, men's sports stuff. That's not garbage. Soaps, they're garbage. You know, I, I think that, like, you know, I mean, I think that if you talked to 2020 Chuck D about that, and, you know, try, like, made your case, I think he would be receptive to that. But, like, that's that's the one thing that sticks out to me on this album is, like, that I'm not as down with. Yeah, I thought you were going to launch into a, a dissertation about Louis Farrakhan, but... Uh, there is that, too. That, uh, uh, that's the... Uh, that would be the other thing, yeah. But I mean, as I think about that, I, you know, like I, you, you kind of, at least for me, I think I have to look at it through the lens of, of you know, 
exploration of ideas. And yeah. you know, if in 1988, if you're on a path to become, you know, kind of a, you know, kind of a uh, black intellectual, I mean, Louis Farrakhan's ideas are going to cross your plate at some point. Absolutely. And like, yeah, you know, like that that's the thing where like I am not too wild about Louis Farrakhan, but like I absolutely understand why, you know, Chuck would have found him important. And like I'm not you know, I, I'm not gonna shit on that and I'm not gonna say that like I know for sure what's right. I guess uh, when I said I would follow Chuck D or I'd consider following Chuck D into hell after I heard the particulars, that that's kind of why, like, I want to, you know, I mean, it's different, but it's not totally different from, you know, like, uh, your typical white college student going through their like Hunter Thompson phase, Absolutely. Of, you know, like, you know, like, you're getting really into Hunter Thompson and then reading more about him and finding out that Wallach is a great writer, you know, it's like kind of a shitty human being. Yeah. I think that's a really good analogy. That, that's a, that's a good way of framing it. And like, I, I know like, again, like I don't, I can't pretend to know, you know, even like a big fraction of everything there is to know about Louis Farrakhan. But I know that, you know, I know he was one of the driving forces behind the Million Man March, and I know when I was when that happened, my shitty young white perspective was just like, well, that's just a thing. Like a bunch of guys went to Washington. Who cares? You know, good for them, I guess. But what's the big deal? And then, like since then, I've just I've heard so many black men of our generation talk about what an inspirational thing that was. That like. I, you know, like, I don't know. I like clearly Louis Farrakhan was behind something that was very important to a lot of people. And, you know, it's, it, it's like the, uh, TV funhouse thing where Mickey mouse is talking about Walt Disney and says, well, you take the good with the bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, that that particular sketch is just like orders of genius. <laughs> that is that is, that like is whoever, lifetime. Like whoever oh. comes up with that idea, like we're gonna we're gonna grill Mickey Mouse on Walt Disney's social record. <laughs> that, that's off. That is you, sir, man. Like that is <laughs> that is fantastic. That's some lifetime past shit. Speaking of lifetime past shit, we like we blew past. One thing I wanted to single out, um, another of my favorite lines from this is when Flav just out of nowhere is like, who gives a fuck about a goddamn Grammy? Like, lifetime pass there. Like, Flavor Flav has led a colorful life since then, but he would have to do something terrible for me not to love him just for finally someone, you know, on on the record saying fuck the Grammys. Like, Thank you. Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to find out what isn't good, like convene, <laughs> convene a board of you know, music industry executives to, to hand out awards. It's, yeah. Uh, well, and you know, like if people at the time were denigrating this as like 
skewing punk like that's that, that that's a very punk thing to just you know take time on the album to put your finger directly in the face of the, uh, the recording establishment and that's that, that that's punk in the best way yeah i mean i think i do think a lot of i mean obviously a lot of public enemies music is is reacting to to social issues, but I, I do think there's a piece of it that's that's kind of a thumb in the eye to the critics that that have have sort of you know they've been forced to deal with their entire career. Definitely, I mean, you know, that's that that's looping in the no more music from these suckers. That's yeah. like a weird number of the songs, you know. So like every song has a grievance that that Chuck's addressing. And like this weird number of them are he's mad that radio stations aren't playing them, um, you know, which is a legit complaint. But it's also it's interesting to me that like he's mad at the music establishment then, and yeah, good for them. Yeah, I mean, I think it it's it, it, it's like any artist that feels like they're feels like they're doing really good, honest work, and they see stuff that's more derivative have a higher commercial appeal. Like I get, I, I can see why that would be frustrating. Yeah. That would just fucking drive you nuts. And this is going to be a hell of a segue, but uh, it's like that bit in the movie being John Malkovich where, uh, where like uh, the, like John Cusack is the authentic puppeteer. Yeah. And there's, there's like the, the there's like the gimmicky fun. <laughs> another great moment from this album is the bit when um, they do like the roll call of the members of Public Enemy asking everyone if they're going to sell out. You know, and they're like, <laughs> not this day, my brother. Before we do, we're going to get the hell out. And like, I just, oh, fuck, that's so awesome. And that, that, I guess that's like a very particular Gen X type of awesome. Yeah, I guess the other the other thing that maybe we should probably talk about that is, is kind of in the negative column is uh, Professor Griff. Professor Griff, yes. Uh, you know, like so. There's kind of if you're not Chuck or Flav, there's two paths in Public Enemy. You either either turn into Professor Griff um, and just go insane, or you're like Terminator X and you start your own ostrich farm. <laughs> you ascend to this higher plane of chill. With your ostriches. <laughs> yeah, Professor Griff. Yeah, not even like, you know, with my point earlier about everyone being funny, there's this thing where like Professor Griff has a pretty funny moment on the album where he like comes in and has the thing about succotash is a meal for people who sell drugs to the brother man instead of the other man. And like, on one hand, that's that's pretty clever and pretty funny, but on the other hand, like, wait a minute, what, what? I just think if you if you uh, you know if it, it's if you took Public Enemy, put it in a bottle and shook it up, if if Professor Griff happened to fall out, I don't think you'd lose. I don't think you'd lose a whole lot. No. I can't remember how long he stuck around. I know like he was not part of the operation. For the long haul. Yeah, I think. I mean, he's he's pretty far out there. He, yeah. Uh, 
if I'm I'm not sure if I'm remembering this correctly, but at one point didn't his house burn down? I don't know. And he claimed the government burned his house down? I don't know. I can't that, remember. That sounds entirely in character. He's uh he's just not I don't know. It's uh I thought you raised a good point earlier and I never really thought of it this way, but one of the things I like about this album is you have you have Flav as kind of a counterweight to, to Chuck's, you know, kind of heavy. You've got yeah. that kind of uh, you've got that kind of foil. I like that. It's this weird thing where like even so like Jimmy Page always talks about like his big idea with Led Zeppelin was like these big um you know, big pairings of light and shade and heavy and light. And, um, you know, so I, I guess in a weird way, Chuck and Flav like kind of operate under the Jimmy Page school, which I don't know that maybe they'd be into that. I don't know. I don't know if that's a comparison they'd like or not. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you have to rip off other artists to be on the, on the Lord <laughs> It definitely gets you more points. That was a cheap shot. Sorry. Um, so one, like stepping back from the album and just looking at the band, I wanted to ask you, you know, so like, I feel like this is like, you know, just this epical album, like, like, you know, very few people make one this good. Um, and you know, for my money, they, it was the start of kind of a hot run. When do you think they came down? Like when was the last good Vital public enemy. Um, I mean, I, I it's hard for me to answer that because I kind of, you know, after he got game came out, like I kind of I, I sort of lost touch with them a little bit. So yeah, uh, I mean, the the later albums could be fantastic. I mean, Yo Bum Rush the show takes a million, and Fear of Black Planet are three really good albums yeah oh um, yeah i don't know what what's your thought where, yeah where, where... i feel like that stretch is where like the albums stayed good and then after that there's like this diminishing returns where like each album will have one or two you know one or two songs that are like of this level of quality but like the theme song for he got game is like the last thing that i would look at is like that's essential public enemy and I've tried listening to the stuff after that, and it just it, you know, that's the point where I guess newness stops creeping in, and it just, you know, it it doesn't work for me. But but like that, he got game theme song is fucking awesome, and you know, a, a lot of the other like highlights from the later 90s are still really good. I mean, Shut Them Down is fantastic. By the time I get to Arizona, is fantastic. I always remember being at First Ave one time back when they had their older sound system that had, like, more bass. And, uh, you know, it was, like, between acts, and they just had someone DJing, and they put on Shut Them Down. And hearing, like, hearing that song with, you know, more of that great, like, Bomb Squad production on that huge fucking first Ave sound system. Like I just re remember like stopping and pausing and being like, this is the best sounding music I have ever heard. Like, I don't know. It's... That's uh, oh, 
that old that old sound system at First Avenue was so freaking loud. It was great. Like I <laughs> like I just they would just crank that thing before shows. Yeah. Like feel it in your bones. That was fantastic. You know, okay, so actually speaking of First Avenue, we have not talked about the time we saw Public Enemy live. Oh yeah? Yeah. Oh. Um how do you feel about that? I feel, I feel great about it personally. It was like a was, I mean, it was sort of a so there's like a handful of, of shows that I feel like I missed over the years, and that was one of them. Yeah. And you know, I I uh, I guess I didn't know that I I wasn't even aware they toured the full band, which I thought yeah. was really really cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I loved it. I mean, I thought it was I thought it was great. It was um, is that the show that we showed up like we showed up like three hours early for accidentally? Yeah, I, I don't think we realized how much of a showcase the opening acts were going to be. So like PE didn't go on, and I, I think it was after midnight when they went yeah. on, but they brought it when they went on. I thought it was interesting that you know, so I, I don't remember what year that was, but it had to have been. It was after 2010. It was 2015 ish, maybe. Um, I thought it was interesting that the S1Ws had updated their uniforms to you know modern army dress. Um, I thought it was wild that like they did the show kind of. I don't know if it was quite medley style, but it seemed like they would like do like shorter versions of songs that like I. I guess I'm describing a medley. They do them, you know, they do a snippet yeah. of this and merge it into that. And, and that seemed to work pretty well. Um, yeah. And it, um, I mean, it was, you got your, you know, exactly what you wanted from Flavor Flav. He came out and said, what's up, Indianapolis? Yeah. In Minneapolis. Threw off Fantastic. a fur coat and just let one of the S1Ws catch it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was like, he, like, I feel like they just keep him in like a freezer truck, right? Like, <laughs> like they they're trying to preserve him as a this, and then like the, they like defrost him for the show and then yeah. put him back on ice. Yeah, that, well, I also remember like then through the course of that show, he like played bass for a little while and played drums <laughs> and just fucking ripped it up on both of them. He's a really talented musician. He's. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was, I mean, that was probably one of my, uh, that was one of the cooler, uh, I mean, I feel like I've, I've had a lot of cool first half experiences. Um, yeah. uh, I guess, uh, which Keith and I have been to a lot of shows at first Avenue together. Yes. So yeah. it, it's, uh, so they're sort of shared experiences at this point, but, yeah. but I feel like that was, that one was fun because it was, you know, I don't go to a lot. I don't go to a lot of hip hop shows, so that one yeah. was kind of fun to, yeah. to uh, kind of break out of the mold a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree. I I saw Chuck say that he thought that tour was actually like their best tour. So I guess we got really lucky and you know, happened to catch them at their best like thirty years late. Um, I've gotten the other side of that a couple times. I feel yeah. Like, so. I was due. 
Yeah, looking over at Jay Maskus. Yeah. Uh, Well, I I think we've kind of run through what I got. You got anything else? Anything else specifically? Um, You know, I I feel like I feel like I should have some kind of gender reveal for the uh, for the next album. Well, yeah, that yeah. So so uh, again, to like to to reiterate this, the the. The conceit of the the new format of the show is we're taking turns picking albums. I picked It Takes a Nation of Millions. It's your pick. Well, in the confetti theme, I, I would like to do uh, the Flaming Lips Soft Bulletin. That's oh, right. shit. Okay. Challenge accepted. That is that is a good pick. A lot to unpack there. Yeah. That's, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, another one, a lot of history to... Yeah, dig through, and I mean, I think that is—that's one of the things I like—is is sort of these talking about these albums that uh, that you've had years to kind of comb over, so yeah. you get to, or I guess, we comb through it, comb over is what you do from here. But yeah, I think that's that's what makes it interesting is you can yeah. kind of talk about how your perspective on the on the uh, on the science has changed. That's I I'm I'm stoked for that. Yeah, right on. Um, yeah, and so I guess that is uh, appears to be what we've got for it takes a nation of millions. So if you've been listening, thanks for rolling with us on the format switch. Um, once again, I'm Keith Pilly. You can find me on Twitter at Keith Pilly and. And I'm Chad Cook. Uh, I am on Twitter as well, at Cook6252. I should also put in a plug for Keith's other podcast, which is a word-for-word recap of uh, Ben Shapiro's podcast. (laughs) It's called Footnotes to an Asshole. (laughs) And it's just me making farting noises for two hours. Uh, if If you could pay 50 bucks to punch Ben Shapiro... Would you? Yeah, I, I drive wherever wherever he is. <laughs> that's that's his retirement plan. After the right wing grift runs out, he's just gonna let people pay to hit him. It's, um, uh, I mean, it, it honestly must be hard to be that big of a butthole. Like, it's like he either he genuinely believes this shit and is horrible, or he is somehow amazingly able to like keep up this awful persona and somehow not just like fatally hate himself. I mean, that's the more impressive part to me is that, you know, he's he either totally lacks self-reflection or he just is, he's just evil incarnate. It's probably number two. Um, <laughs> and on that note, uh, so yeah, we would love to, if you're a listener and you're not Ben Shapiro, we would love to hear from you. Uh, if there's anything you liked or didn't like about the show, um, or if you think we suck, you want to pay 50 bucks to punch us. Um, if you dug the, the show, especially with the, the, you know, the new format, new look, please tell people about it or go to your podcast purveyor and uh, leave a review. And uh, yeah, thanks. We'll be back again. Hopefully not with a five-month gap next time to, uh, to talk about the soft bulletin.